Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 6. Last week, I wrapped up the summary of the book of Joshua, covering the last two chapters. I then circled back to the beginning of the book to begin the deeper dive into the history of the people, places, and things found in it. In that episode, covering the place known as Shatim, where the Israelites encamped before crossing the Jordan River into Canaan. I also added some clarity to the woman Rahab, who aided the Israelite spies when they scoped out the city of Jericho. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in Joshua chapter 2 with the spies and pushing forward. And with that, let's get started. After the spies were hidden by Rahab and escaped, they headed for what's called the hill country. More than likely, these were the hills near Jericho, somewhere bordering the Jordan Valley. This is a very easy conclusion, given that's where Jericho is located. Unfortunately, not much more than that is really known, as the valley is pretty much surrounded by hills. Take your pick which direction on the compass rose. You're just as likely to be correct as anyone else. After hiding for three days in the hills, the spies crossed the Jordan and reported their observations to Joshua. Other than these hills and Rahab, there isn't anything new in chapter 2. Chapter 3 has the Israelites crossing the Jordan from Shatim into Canaan. We're told the river was flooding at the time, a result of the seasonal rains, which begs the question, how wide and deep was the river then? The Israelites crossed opposite of the city of Jericho. This is towards the southern end of the river, just before it enters the Dead Sea. The text doesn't tell us how deep and wide it was at that point and in that season. And to be fair, even if it did, it wouldn't have given us the measurements in either standardized feet or meters. Maybe in cubits, but we don't know. Instead, we need to rely on what the river is like now. When it's not flooding, at this point in its course, it's only about 100 feet, 30 meters wide, and its depth is anywhere between 3 and 10 feet, 1 to 3 meters. Though these measurements, both width and depth, can vary greatly based on the exact spot where the measurements are made. The overriding message I'm trying to convey is that in the dry season, it's not very formidable and easily fordable. But it wasn't the dry season. It was flooding, meaning that it was wider than the usual 100 feet and deeper than 10, and the current was certainly swifter. There are points near Jericho where the riverbanks have steep slopes, even canyon walls. In these areas, the river can't get wider in the flood season, so it can only get deeper, and when it does, the current picks up. But the Israelites likely didn't cross here for several reasons. The first is practicality. Even if the waters were held back, crossing in a canyon would have been difficult, if not impossible. Also, the text tells us that the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant dipped their feet in the water. To me at least, this seems to indicate that the slope, the bank, 
to enter the river was shallower than the edge of a cliff. This likely meant that it was sandy, or at least a mixture of sand and rock. But, hydraulics being what they are, it also meant that at this point, the river was wider, and certainly had deep spots, where if they didn't have a level too deep to walk through, the current would have been swift enough to sweep people away. Whichever it was, it didn't matter, as the complete flow of water was stopped. And when it stopped, it stood still, rising up in a single heap, far off at the city of Adam. Of course, I tried to imagine what a single heap of water looked like. All I can really envision is the crossing of the Red Sea, as depicted in the 1956 movie The Ten Commandments. Except the Jordan wasn't nearly as immense as the Red Sea, though it had flowing water, and the heap grew by the second, especially in the flood season. But this episode isn't about the crossing of the Red Sea, and instead that much smaller body of water, the Jordan River. The text tells us that the water stopped and backed up as far as the city of Adam, which was, in the same sentence, said to have been beside Zarathan, giving me two places to cover. The first, the city of Adam, has been lost to the passage of time. And given that the text tells us the city that it was next to, it may have also been lost to whoever wrote the book of Joshua, meaning, according to most sources, Joshua himself. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been the need to tell the reader, even the ancient reader, where it was. There is a thought, and it really isn't much more than that, that the city was at the site at the modern village of Damia, located on the east bank of the Jordan River, in the modern country of Jordan. And that's about it. Fortunately, more is known about the neighboring village of Zarathon, but not much more. What is easy to assume is that both of these places were north of Jericho, on the Jordan River. It was mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, usually in reference to it being in the Jordan Valley. It's thought to be the same place as Zerdatha, mentioned in the King James in 2 Chronicles 4, though the New Revised Standard and the NIV call it the same name as in Joshua, with the NIV adding a clarifying footnote tying all three versions together. Like the city of Adam, the actual location is unknown, and a bit of a dispute, with some researchers placing it on the West Bank and others on the east. But, and like I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Jordan can be as narrow as 100 feet, or 100 divided by 3.28 meters wide. That means the location on either bank wouldn't be very far apart. Adding to the confusion is that rivers, especially those found in loose soil, like in the Jordan Valley, those rivers tend to change course frequently. A couple of different archaeological sites have been proposed, but still nothing conclusive enough to warrant a deeper dive. And honestly, even if I did dive into those, not much is known about them either. One of these sites is thought to be near where the Jabuk River, modernly known as the Zarka, flows into the Jordan. It would make sense if the water stopped below any major tributary, as if it didn't, 
we'd likely have been told those waters, too, were held back while all of the people crossed. But I recognize that as being a bit speculative. And that's it about these two places. At the end of chapter 3, the people finally make it all the way across the Jordan, except the priests bearing the ark. As the chapter wraps, they're still standing in the middle of the dry riverbed while the waters are being held back, which gets me to chapter 4. It was at this point in the narrative that Joshua directs one man from each tribe to retrieve a stone from the river, more specifically from the middle where the priest stood, and bring it to the shore to be used in a monument. These were not mere rocks, as the text tells us they had to be carried on the men's shoulders, implying they had some heft to them. The stones were to be carried to where they would camp that night their first night in Canaan, at least as a people, as a whole, save the two and a half tribes that remained to the east of the Jordan. Though these tribes were represented too by their warriors who were preparing to battle their way through the promised land. As soon as the stones were gathered and Joshua, who had built his own monument of twelve stones in the middle of the river, as soon as they were all clear of the riverbed, The priest, carrying the ark, made their way to the bank. And, just as their feet hit what had been, and would remain, dry ground, the held-up waters came back, and the Jordan returned to flood stage. At this point, all of the people made their way to the west, towards Jericho, and away from the Jordan River, finding a place to camp that night. The place where the people would encamp was known as Gilgal, which gives me the next place to cover. I touched on this location in Chapter 6, Episode 35, released a couple of months ago while covering the history around the book of Deuteronomy. But, at that time, I saved most of what's known about the location for when I got back to the book of Joshua, which means this episode. According to the text, Gilgal is on the east border of Jericho. Jericho, at least the center of the modern town, is about five miles, eight kilometers from the Jordan. So, if the people were camped between the river and the city, they didn't have to travel far after crossing the river. And they were close enough that the people of the Canaanite city surely knew they were there. Back at Gilgal, Joshua took the twelve stones and set them up. Then he told the people, When your children ask their parents in the time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel crossed over the Jordan here, on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you, until you crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we crossed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Joshua 5 tells us that the place was named Gilgal, due specifically to the circle of stones. And this tells us, at least indirectly, that before the stones were set up, it was either named something else, or had no name. I'm going with a no-name name. My reasoning is that the Israelites encamped, not in a city, 
but in the plain of the Jordan Valley, a place that, at best, was mere farmland. There's no mention in the text of them fighting anyone there. So, whoever lived there, as someone most certainly did, as this tended to be rich agricultural land, whoever was there before the Israelites came either left or put up little to no resistance. At least nothing worth mentioning at this point in the text. Though Joshua 12, in the New Revised Standard, does list a king of Goyim in Galilee that was defeated by the Israelites. And I bring this up because the footnote gives an alternate translation as Gilgal. Both the NIV and King James both just list Gilgal. Almost. The King James says this ruler controlled the nations of Gilgal. I reconcile all of this as this unnamed king controlling the general area around Gilgal which couldn't have been terribly large, as it did not include Jericho, just a few miles to the west. The 4th century A.D. Greek Christian scholar Eusebius identified this king as also ruling over the city of Jaljulia. But I'm not buying this, as Jaljulia was far to the west, near the coast, with many other rulers in between. The only way this would have worked was if Gilgal was a satellite holding, and those were few and far between in that era, typically only existing where there was a rare and valuable natural resource, which there's no mention of, practically anywhere, of any such a thing at Gilgal. There's another potential source of the name, and that's that it relates to their time in Egypt. Some posit that Gilgal relates to the word galoti, and this equates to the shame that was put on the people during their time in Egypt. More on that in a minute. Either way, the shame was gone, and the circle of stones were set up, both at Gilgal. Later in Joshua, in chapter 15, Gilgal is said to be on the border of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, Here it's said to be opposite of the slope of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley, meaning the Jordan Valley. If we needed additional input as to its location, this would certainly help. But honestly, knowing it's between the Jordan and Jericho already narrowly nails down the location. This reference really serves more as confirmation, as does the mention in Deuteronomy where Moses tells the people, You shall set the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebel. As you know, they are beyond the Jordan, some distance to the west, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak Amora. As for the circle of stones set up there, they may have been the same stones that were mentioned in Amos 4 and 5, along with Hosea 4. In these passages were the Israelites, the far down the line descendants of those that crossed the Jordan and originally set up the stones. These many centuries later, Israel had turned from God, just as it was foretold they would. And when they did, the prophets writing these two books told them not to enter Gilgal, being in the unclean state that they were. Like I covered a few weeks ago, It was also part of the yearly route of the prophet Samuel, 
and where Saul's kingship was renewed. About the same time, or at least in that same period, it was at Gilgal that Samuel executed an Amalekite king known as Agag. This was after King Saul defeated, meaning killed, many Amalekites, but Saul failed to execute the Amalekite king, so Samuel took it upon himself to do it. There will be much more on this when I get to the history around the books of Samuel. There are other mentions of Gilgal in the Old Testament, and I touched on many of these in the previous episode. With these, it's possible that they don't refer to this specific location, but instead to a more generic meaning of a circle of stones. And with that, moving on to Joshua chapter 5. This chapter begins with the Israelite men being circumcised with flint knives. The use of flint was specific, and given this was during the transition from the Bronze to the Iron Age, more technologically advanced knives were available. The specific use of flint was likely, partially, an homage to the genealogical roots. But there is also another theory, and that's that in that era, even with copper, bronze, and potentially iron tools and knives, flint was still sharper, allowing a cleaner and maybe less painful cut. But there's something else. A flint knife tends to have a more uniform blade, meaning a blade without pits and pores, where bacteria can hide and breed. And with that, a quicker and less fraught healing. Do note, and like I've mentioned many times before, this was long, meaning thousands of years before the advent of germ theory. The Israelites didn't know about bacteria and viruses and fungi. But throughout the Pentateuch, they were given instructions on what they could do to avoid such germ-spreading diseases, from scrubbing mold off their walls to quarantining sick people. They had probably noticed this, but just didn't know why it worked like it did. And it helped that God told Joshua to use the specific knife. After the outpatient surgery, the people remained at Gilgal for an unspecified period of time so the men could heal. It was during this time that we got the alternate meaning for Gilgal. When God told Joshua, Today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. And so that place is called Gilgal to this day. Either during the healing period or after, the Israelites celebrated their first Passover in the Promised Land, and the manna stopped arriving. From that point forward, they would be fed by the crops found locally, which, at least for that Passover meal, included unleavened bread and parched grain. Given that they were encamped in the agricultural plain of the Jordan Valley, really in the flood plain of the Jordan River, these foodstuffs were typical along with fruits such as dates, grapes, and olives, as well as other grains like einkorn and potentially barley, and the usual livestock of that era. Plenty to choose from. Joshua 5 wraps up with his vision of the commander of the army of the Lord, telling him that he was standing on holy ground. And that's the chapter. Which gets me to 6, where the Israelites attack Jericho, using extremely unconventional means. And it works. 
They seize the city and slaughter everyone there, except for Rahab and her family. Not much is introduced in this chapter, except for a trumpet made from a ram's horn, which the Israelite priest blew as they marched around the city. In the modern religious practice, any observant male Jew is qualified to blow the horn, and the person who does so holds the title that translates from Hebrew to English as the master of the blast. In ancient Judaism, only free men were allowed to blow it. It's unclear if the role was reserved for Levitical priests during the period when the people marched around Jericho, though the text does specifically say that it were the priests that blew the horns on the day the walls came crumbling down. These horns are traditionally known as shofars and are still used in traditional Jewish religious services. The mention in Joshua wasn't the first in the Bible, as in Exodus 19, a noisy blast from a shofar at Mount Sinai was so loud that the Israelites trembled in fear. Do note that the trumpet mentioned in Numbers 10 is thought to be a different instrument. Shofars are traditionally made from a ram's horn, though the Talmud allows them to be made from any horned animal, except a cow. It can even come from unclean animals, since it's not eaten and the horn itself is not considered holy. That they can be made from any animal sounds more encompassing than it really is. An antler won't do, as it's solid bone. A horn, on the other hand, is not solid bone and is instead made from a layer of keratin, like in finger and toenails that surround a core of bone. In between the keratin on the outside and the bone in the center is a layer of cartilage. In making this shofar, both the cartilage and bone are removed, leaving a hollowed-out keratin horn. The general practice in modern Judaism is that two species are generally used, a domestic ram, meaning a male sheep, and the horn from a kudu. A kudu is a horned, obviously, antelope native to Canaan, along with much of the surrounding region. While the horn from the ram is rounder and more curved, the antelope horn is longer and flatter. Those used for religious purposes may not be painted or plated, but can be carved. Also, any sort of crack or hole that affects the sound make the horn unfit for service. When they are being made, heat is applied so that they can be reshaped. In the pointed end, a hole is drilled. This is where the player blows, in a manner similar to most brass musical instruments. And because all of the horns are unique, the sounds produced by each are two. In ancient Judaism, and to a large degree, even in the modern religion, the horn is used for ceremonial purposes. It was used to announce the new moon, the first day of Rosh Hashanah, and the end of the day of fasting during Yom Kippur, along with the Jubilee year, which was every half century. And it would herald the start of a war, which is actually more practical than you might imagine. Think of it as the equivalent of the almost modern bugle. In the era before radio communication, 
especially at night, in fog, or when obscured by geographic features like hills or forest. The sounding of a horn was an easy way for dispersed troops to communicate. Back in Joshua 6, the importance of the horns is easily seen with how many times they are mentioned. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men went before the priest who blew the trumpets. The rear guard came after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. All total, the trumpets merited 14 mentions in the text. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue with the history found in the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.